Many commentators have remarked on the intertextual relationship between Michael Faber's 2002 novel, The Crimson Petal and the White, and Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. In both, a Victorian master falls for his governess, in this case a prostitute lifted from the streets, but also has a mad wife hidden away upstairs. In this paper, I will argue that Faber has appropriated these narrative elements in order to rewrite Jane Eyre in explicitly feminist and neo-Victorian terms. I'll be referring to Sandra M. Gilbert and Susan Gubar's very influential reading of the novel to illustrate the ways in which Faber's revision um, might have been influenced by feminist critical discourse. Faber complicates the doubled relationship between Jane and Bertha in the relationship between Sugar and Agnes. Sugar is a highly literate prostitute who becomes a governess while Agnes is William Rackham's mad wife. Faber has Sugar act out the emasculating revenge so often seen as buried in Bertha's destruction of Thornfield and Mr. Rochester's final uh, maiming and blinding. Sugar leaves behind her early, violently misandrist fantasies of torturing and murdering Johns, um, instead erasing the markers of William Rackham's masculinity, um, in particular a carefully constructed bourgeois domestic masculinity in stealing his wife and daughter from him. The Crimson Petal and the White is therefore a neo-Victorian and feminist revisioning of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, bringing its submerged thematics of revenge and emasculation to the textual surface and blurring the distinctions between its female doubles. Um, and my paper too falls into approximately three parts as a guide. First, to talk a little bit about the neo-Victorian genre and its relationship to intertextuality. Talk about the complex doubling between Agnes and Sugar, and also William Rackham's uh, construction of his masculinity and its consequent destruction um, by sugar. So as I said before, The Crimson Petal and the White is a neo-Victorian novel belonging to a particularly self-reflexive brand of contemporary historical fiction. The first easily identifiable neo-Victorian novels are Jean Rhys's Wide Sargasso Sea from 1966 and John Fowles's The French Lieutenant's Woman, 1969. Both novels return to the Victorian period to act out Victorian concerns. Jean Rhys, of course, rewrites Jane Eyre from the perspective of Rochester's wife, while Fowles delves into the unspeakable side of Victorian sexual morality in depicting a premarital liaison. Neo-Victorian fiction often enacts feminist, post-colonial, or queer concerns within a Victorian setting. Writers of neo-Victorian fiction also return to the conventions of the Victorian novel itself, making this a self-consciously literary form of historical fiction. Returning to the model, of the, Victorian, the model of the Victorian novel can allow writers greater license to embrace quote-unquote traditional methods of storytelling than the contemporary literary novel, which critics have argued favors postmodern notions of fragmentation and difficulty. However, this return to the Victorian novel also allows writers to play with readers' expectation of what a Victorian novel and what the Victorians themselves should look like and also how narrative is constructed. Mark Llewellyn points to the beginning of The Crimson Petal and the White to illustrate the, this challenge to reader expectations. So this is from the very beginning. Watch your step. Keep your wits about you. You will need them. This city I am bringing you to is vast and intricate, and you have not been here before. You may imagine from other stories you've read that you know it well, but those stories flattered you, welcoming you as a friend, treating you as if you belonged. The truth is that you are an alien from another time and place altogether. Llewellyn is suggesting that the narrator confronts the reader with their own assumptions about what a Victorian novel or Victorian London should look and feel like based on readers' previous experiences through other Victorian novels and, of course, the, um, the production of uh, adaptations that we see um, on BBC and ITV especially. 
This opening also emphasizes the alienation the reader should feel in being led into a London that is much grittier and more sexualized than anything one might find in Dickens, for example, either on the page or in a screen adaptation. The refrain of watch your step, which can be read as guidance or as, quote, words of warning or even threat, become crucial to the book, both as narratorial advice and also as the horror's hand leading one into the darkness, telling one where to step, which rotten stairs to miss. Faber's novel narrativity narratively enacts the disconcerting jar that comes with having that hand in the darkness suddenly withdrawn at the end of the book, um, leaving both the reader and William Rackham very disconcerted. Because neo-Victorian writing returns to the Victorian novel, Victorian intertexts are often invoked. As Alexis L. Bowler and Jessica Cox write in their introductory essay to the special issue of neo-Victorian studies on adaptation and rewriting, quote, Intertextual networks and resonances perceived within and between texts offer a dialogue between works as well as the potential for renewed or revised perspectives on the earlier texts and the cultural moments of their original production. Faber has written The Crimson Petal and the White into many textual networks. Sugar and Agnes's doubled relationship is supported by the novel's title, drawn from Tennyson's 1847, Now Sleeps the Crimson Petal, from The Princess. Faber also provides an extract from J.A. Gray's poem, J.A. Gray's poem, The Girls That Are Wanted, written about 1880, um, using it as an epigraph. Here, the girls that are wanted are, quote, good girls, pure as the lily, who will become mothers and wives, while, quote, the clever, the witty, the brilliant girl is left aside. Agnes is, at first glance, one of the girls who are wanted, conventionally beautiful and virginal. However, she is also traumatized by sex and denies the existence of her child, making her an apostate from the Victorian cult of motherhood and a madwoman. Sugar, on the other hand, is well-read and better suited to meet William Rackham on an intellectual level, but she will never be wanted by men for respectable purposes because she has damaged goods. Faber's London is in many ways also a darker Dickensian London, full of pickpockets, starving children, and whores. Sugar's mother and madam is suitably named Mrs. Castaway. One of the most interesting things that Faber does in this novel is create a complicated echo of Jane and Bertha's doubled relationship in the characters of Sugar and Agnes. Sandra M. Gilbert and Susan Gubar were among the first to identify Bertha as Jane's dark double and to see Rochester's first wife as acting out Jane's submerged rage and vengefulness. Quote, Bertha is Jane's truest and darkest double. She is the angry aspect of the orphan child, the ferocious secret self that Jane has been trying to repress. Sugar and Agnes reproduce the relationship between Jane and Bertha um, as governess and as mad wife, but double for each other in expressing rage against the Victorian patriarchal system that forces women to be whores or angels. Faber has sexualized his Jane figure and made his madwoman an ideal of Victorian purity, blurring the lines between his doubles to suggest that all women in this world are victims of patriarchy. As both women are troped as mad, sugar in part for her unladylike business sense, and William's friends tell him early on that, quote, there are hordes of madwives about, half of London's females are positively raving. The text seems to suggest that any woman who refuses to act her part will be cast as insane and other. Because Faber and the contemporary reader accept different causes of mental illness than Charlotte Bronte and the Victorian medical establishment did, it, Agnes's madness is constructed rather differently from Bertha's. Bertha's moral madness expresses itself in Bertha's, quote, giant propensities as she drags Rochester, quote, through all the hideous and degrading agonies which must attend a man bound to a wife at once intemperate and unchaste. 
In addition to the instability apparently rife in her female line, sexual immorality dooms Bertha to her confine confinement in the third story of Thornfield Hall. On the other hand, in this novel, many factors may contribute to Agnes's mental illness. The narrator intrudes to tell the reader that Agnes has a brain tumor for one thing. Quote, she has no inkling it's there. No one will ever find it. Röntgen photography is 20 years in the future. Only you and I know of this tumor's existence. It is our little secret. Faber's narrator creates a closed privileged circle with the reader, giving him or her medical knowledge that the characters of Crimson Petal could not possibly share. The fact of this brain tumor could explain Agnes's madness in purely physiological terms, and thus nullify the complex social, religious, and emotional nexus that Faber also presents to the reader. For instance, Agnes's madness is also linked to sexuality, as Bertha's is, but Agnes is traumatized by her sexual experience, as no one has educated her about reproduction or her own body. Her first experience of menstruation occurred shortly after her mother's death of a hemorrhage, her, therefore, grief and a quite, in some ways, sensible fear of bleeding, also belief in demons inspired by her childhood understanding of Catholicism, thus twined together in Agnes's state of forced innocence. The doctor William Rackham employs for his wife's care is convinced that Agnes is suffering from the Victorian catch-all of uterine disease, sexually abuses her, and argues that she should be put away in an asylum. Agnes is also silenced for the rebellious nature of her madness. In her fits, she speaks truths her husband and doctor don't want to hear. In one, Agnes confronts William with his selfishness and egotism. Quote, you don't believe in anything, do you? She says in a low, ugly voice he's never heard from her before. You believe in nothing, nothing except William Rackham. For William, this, har this harsh voice and suddenly visible rage and rebellion, quote, is as strange and shocking in her rosebud mouth as the growl of a dog or a Pentecostal torrent of tongues. Agnes was supposed to be a doll or child bride, and when she refuses to be, she is drugged senseless and condemned to be sent away to an asylum. Gilbert and Gubar argue that the most important relationship in Jane Eyre is Jane's relationship with her double rather than her relationship with Rochester. That is certainly debatable, but it's clear that the relationships among the females of the Rackham house, Sugar, Agnes, and Agnes's daughter, Sophie, are much more important than their relationships with William Rackham, however much their status is controlled and socially mediated by him. Agnes never truly knows Sugar. If she knew she was a prostitute, she would definitely scorn her. Instead, Agnes catches glimpses of Sugar as she spies on the Rackham household and adopts her as a guardian angel, a replacement for her childhood devotion to St. Teresa of Avila. Sugar becomes instrumental to her fantasies of being delivered to the convent of health where she believes she will be cared for. Sugar interacts with Agnes on very few occasions. Mo for the most part, her relationship with Agnes is created textually through patient reading of her diaries. Sugar's actual experience in rescuing Agnes from an attempted robbery proves to her that she is a woman like any other who should be protected from the men who would try to harm her. Sugar self-identifies as Agnes's guardian angel um, in order to keep her identity hidden from in case William finds out, and this in turn binds Sugar to helping Agnes. In, read in reading Agnes's diaries, Sugar gains access to a personal record no one was meant to see. Agnes had even gone to the trouble of burying the numerous volumes in the garden. It's possible then to see Sugar's act of decipherment and uncovering as an invasion of privacy. Sugar is cast in the role of the male voyeur, like the woman in white's Count Fosco when he reads the diary of Marion Halcombe, whom he desires. 
Sugar longs to find a key to Agnes's madness, to discover the true nature of her marriage to William and her role as mother to Sophie. Sugar wants to see how this apparent paragon of Victorian womanhood played the role of wife and mother that Sugar is acting at in putting her identity as a whore behind her. Ultimately, however, the diaries prattle on endlessly about society matters and Agnes's own self-absorption. Sugar realizes that Agnes is truly a helpless child. She has, quote, been groomed to do nothing especially well except appear in public looking beautiful and to signify William's status. While Gilbert and Gubar argue that, quote, women in Jane's world acting as agents for men may be the keepers of women, like Grace Poole, Sugar decides she must act on her promise to keep Agnes safe and orchestrates her removal from the house. Though Agnes cannot realize it, she and Sugar are both in league against William Rackham, and their commonality spurs Sugar into helping Agnes escape true imprisonment. To better understand how Sugar's fin final revenge emasculates William Rackham and serves a similar purpose to Bertha's destruction of Thornfield, the reconstruction of William Rackham's masculinity and its subsequent destruction must be considered. At the beginning of the novel, Rackham, disappointed with his married life and ignoring his responsibilities as a father, attempts to keep up an ever more forced performance as the literary dandy and idler that he had cultivated as an undergraduate at Cambridge and as a young rake in Paris. While courting Agnes, he had worn his hair long and dressed rather adventurously in, quote, check trousers, canary yellow waistcoat, and hunting caps. However, he is forced to reconstruct himself as a captain of industry because his father will cut him off if he doesn't take up the family business. He is first drawn to Sugar because she allows him to dominate her sexually at the moment when he feels most depressed by his father's control, while also stroking his ego and helping him with his business correspondence and advertising copy. Rackham cuts his hair and grows an impressive beard. As business improves, he is able to acquire that all-important symbol of middle-class status, the male servant in the form of a coach driver. Yet what he lacks as a bourgeois man is a happy domestic life. After Agnes's disappearance, he seeks to recreate and chemically fix the family life he never had with a photograph taken with Sugar and Sophie. Sugar believes that William has decided to make a family life with her now that Agnes is gone. How, without her knowledge, however, he has the photographer replace her head with Agnes's from a photograph taken during their courtship before their relationship was ruined by sexuality. As, as you might expect, blowing up and modi modifying photographs did not work nearly as well in the mid-1870s as it does now in the age of Photoshop. William's attempt at creating a visual representation of the perfect family presided over by a disturbingly fused wife and mother, and Agnes who loves their child but who has the sexual willingness and intelligence of sugar is a travesty. William's photographic failure sends him looking for a fle flesh and blood replacement for the home life he has never had. Unlike Agnes's uncontrolled outbursts, Sugar's rage is hidden away in her novel of revenge, The Fall and Rise of Sugar. As Sugar becomes more involved in the life of the Rackham family and sees how his wife and daughter are treated, she becomes dissatisfied with her magnum opus. Quote, all these straw men meeting grisly ends, what flesh and blood woman is helped by it? Sugar sees that even well-born women are in danger of becoming warped and deformed by the Victorian patriarchal system. Her overblown melodramatic writing and personal fantasies of revenge or murder are therefore of no practical use to anyone and will do nothing to stem Rackham's patriarchal control. Rackham's fate is sealed when he dismisses Sugar upon discovering she is pregnant with his child. She has supposedly gone beyond the pale of morality. But really, now that Rackham's marital situation has changed, or so he believes, he no longer needs Sugar and has set his sights on a young aristocratic widow. 
William, William will replace Sugar with a governess who will teach his daughter accomplishments. Quote, all in capitalized, by the way, dancing, playing the piano, German, and watercolors, thus beginning the process that led to Agnes's being finished without ever being educated. Sugar refuses to leave Sophie to such a fate, so they escape together. At the novel's end, Sugar has finally acted out her long sought after revenge by removing the visible markers of William's carefully constructed, recon reconstructed masculinity as a patriarch. He also ends the novel a physical wreck. Faber juxtaposes Sugar's spiriting away of Agnes with Rackham's being violently assaulted on leaving a pub, resulting in a nervous, nervous stammer and damage to his right hand. Faber narratively allows Sugar's blow to William's masculinity to take physical form. And at the very end of the book, William returns to Sugar's old patch, but without her careful watch or step, and falls through a rotten stair, badly injuring his leg. The narrator leaves William and the reader there without ever explaining what has happened to Sugar and Sophie. They have disappeared from the page. Quote, an abrupt parting, I know, but that's the way it always is, isn't it? And I won't leave you there, I will conclude. Faber offers the reading an ending perhaps as romanticized as Jane Eyre's, though without its reader I married him, which the reader has earlier learned that Sugar detests. Instead, Sugar escapes from the imprisoning patriarchal Rackham home and takes William's endangered daughter and wife with her. As Bertha acts out Jane's revenge in burning Thornfield to the ground and maiming and blinding Mr. Rochester, so Sugar revenges herself on William Rackham by removing the markers of his new masculine style and indirectly taking his physical prowess from him and perhaps, um, by means of ensuing scandal, his reputation in business. The parallels in characters and theme between Jane Eyre and Crimson Petal make the active, knowledgeable reader consider how doubling revenge and emasculation might function in both texts. Through these means, these careful repetitions and complications, Faber encourages an explicitly feminist reading of his own text and reflects it back onto Jane Eyre itself, echoing feminist critical discourses such as those of, of Gilbert and Gubar. Thank you.